This year we are studying prayer, and one of the ways we're learning how to pray is by looking at some of the great prayers of the Bible, and this certainly is one of them. Um, one summer morning, a man named Ray Blankenship was fixing breakfast, and he looked out the window, and there's this uh, river, the stream that goes behind his house, and he saw this little girl being swept away by the uh, torrential current. And so he immediately stopped what he was doing. He ran out the door. He started running down the stream because he knew that soon the stream would go into a culvert and would go under a road and the girl would be trapped under there and would certainly drown. And so he ran to get ahead of her and and continued to run and finally was able to get ahead and he jumped into the current, went under the water. And when he came back up, he was able to grab hold of her arm. But now they're both being swept by the current down towards the culvert, towards a certain death. And he's holding her on and they're being tossed and tumbled by the, by the current. And just about three feet before they go under the road, he was able to reach out, grab hold of a rock that protruded from the side, grab hold of that rock, holding onto her, and now the current is seeking to rip him from the rock and rip her from his arms, and he holds on for dear life. And finally, somehow, he doesn't even know how, he was able to grab her, pull her to shore, and get on the shore. By the time the firefighters arrived, both of them were pretty banged up and bruised, suffering from shock, uh, but both of them survived. He was later awarded a a medal by the Coast Guard for his life-saving. What made his story even more remarkable is Ray Blankenship cannot swim. He jumped into the current knowing he couldn't swim, but realizing this was this little girl's only hope. Now, how many of us would do that? My guess is that many of you would. That there are many of you that I believe would, if you saw a little girl going down the stream, you would risk your own life to save her. You, you would do that. But what if it wasn't a precious little girl? What if it was a drug dealer, a thug, a criminal? Maybe someone whom you would even say, maybe even deserve to die. Would, would you jump in then? Would you jump to their rescue? Well, in Exodus chapter 32, we find Moses, the leader of Israel, interceding on behalf of the people of God. Now, don't let that name, people of God, fool you, uh, because the people of God does not mean they are good people. Uh, They are anything but good people. These are people who, as we look, really are not worth saving on their own merit. And yet we find that Moses intercedes for them, he intervenes for them, Uh, on on their behalf before God. And so Moses prays for them. And I think as we look at this prayer, we can understand a lot about prayer and about why we ought to pray and give us uh, an impulse to pray. But not only that, but also why we're even here in the world. Because even as Moses intercedes on the behalf of the nation of Israel, God has called us as his people to intercede on behalf of the world. We're not here for us. Here's one of the surprising things about the church. The church does not exist for the church. The church exists for the world. We are here as Christ's witnesses in the world. And when we begin to understand that mission, that we are not here for us, that we are here as as the body of Christ for the world, it changes how we pray and it changes how we live. So let's look at uh, this passage. And to, to be people of prayer, we're gonna see two different convictions that we have to have from this passage. And there are a number of others that we'll be covering over the next few months, but two convictions here. And the first is we have to see the need, the need for prayer. Now, 
Here's the setting. The people of Israel are camped out at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses has gone up to the top of the mountain to meet with the Lord. And while Moses is up there meeting with the Lord, he, God gives him the law and the covenant, and this covenant relationship is the contract about how he's going to be Israel's God and how they're going to live because he is the God who's rescued them out of Egypt. He's been their deliverer. And so he's calling them to live in faithfulness to him. And even while he's up there, imagine this, God carves the 10 commandments with his own finger on tablets of stone and gives these to Moses. Well, while Moses is up there, he's up there for quite a long time. In fact, uh, so long that people begin to wonder what is going on. And so Moses is gone for, for 40 days. He doesn't call, he doesn't write, not even a text message. And so people are wondering, and by the way, he's not a young man. He's, he's 80 years old and Joshua had gone off with him, but Joshua didn't go the whole way. And, and so the people of Israel don't know what's happened to Moses. And so they begin to think, well, he, he's probably dead or he's abandoned us. And so what do we do now? Here we are stranded in the middle of the desert and the person who led us here is gone. So, so what do we do? And so they come up to Moses' brother, Aaron, and they say to him, hey, this fellow, and by the way, that means exactly what it sounds like. This fellow led us out here and now he's gone. And so you need to make some gods for us who can lead us. And, uh, and by the way, this is not a, a request, it is a demand that the Hebrew literally says they gathered against Aaron. And so the mob comes and they say, you better make some gods for us. And so Aaron uh, is intimidated by the crowd and he, and he gives in. And he says, okay, tell you what, bring me all your, your wives' earrings, your son's earrings, your daughter's earrings, and I'm gonna take everybody's earrings. And I'm gonna take their earrings, and I'm gonna melt them down, and we're gonna form a golden calf. And he does this. Now you may wonder why a golden calf. A uh, golden calf was a, a rather common idol symbol uh, in that part of the ancient world. And so, so that's just kind of what they knew. And so he, he makes a golden calf uh, out, out of their, all their jewelry. And he says, and so tomorrow morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna get up and we're gonna worship the Lord God. And he uses, by the way, the name Yahweh, God's covenant name, says we're going to worship this Lord God with this golden calf and we're going to have a party to God. And so they get up the next morning and they offer sacrifices to the golden calf and then they throw this party. And it's not just a party, it is a wild party. It says, uh, in fact, if you look at the verse six, it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Sat down to eat and drink, rose up to play. And the word play there can possibly mean sexual activity. So in the name of the Lord, they're bowing before the, the, the golden calf and they're having a, a raucous party. It's like a scene from Animal House and they're calling it worship. That's what's going on. Uh, and to make matters worse, they're saying that this golden calf is, are, represents the gods, plural, who led them out of Egypt. They're ascribing to the golden calf what only God had done. So God says in verse 10, he comes to Moses and he says, I've had it. I am done with these people. We're gonna reboot, control, alt, delete. <laughs> We're gonna start all over and I'm gonna restart with you, Moses, and your family and I'm gonna kill everybody else and destroy them. And, and so here we see, see the problem. Uh, Moses knows God's not joking. The people of Israel are on the verge of destruction and Moses sees that what God is about to do. He hears what God has said. And so what does Moses do? He intervenes. 
He prays on behalf of the people. He pleads for them. See, the, the need is obvious. And there, there's no question that Israel is in danger. There's no question that the need wasn't there. And so the need was obvious to Moses that something had to be done or else the nation of Israel would be destroyed. And so like Moses, for us to be people of prayer, we need to see that the need is obvious. We, we, we go through life, we walk through this world, and we live as if, as one philosopher says, we live as if uh, the whole world is in what he calls the imminent frame. It's only that which is close to us, or what, um, what the, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, that we think that all of life is what's under the sun, that there's nothing above it, that there's no other world. We live as if this world is all that there is. And yet we have to remember that this life is not all that there is to life, that there's more to life than this, that, that every human being will face one of two destinies. Every human being will either spend eternity in bliss with God forever or in, or in everlasting torment. Everyone is caught in the raging flood, being swept away to death, and unless someone saves them, they will die. Without the grace of God, people will face the judgment of God. That is the reality. That is the reality. And, and when we fail to see that reality, we become, we become passive. You know, think about uh, if, if Ray Blankenship had looked out his window and saw that girl being swept by the current and simply said, that's a shame, and poured himself another cup of coffee, what would you think of him? You think that's inhumane, that, that's, it's, it's cruel. How, how can you do that? How can you see a need like that and do nothing? At least pick up the phone, right? Do something, engage somehow. Yet the world around us is being swept away in a torrent of judgment. And how can we look at the world around us knowing that people are lost without Jesus, without being compelled to pray? How can we hold on to our money and not give it away in generous proportions? when we know that there are nations, entire nation groups around the world that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we, we see the need, and, when we, 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 and so the question is, do we really believe that this is real? Do you really believe that the, what we are seeing in God's word is an actual true description of the world around us? Because when we see the need, we will not be passive. We will be people who engage in prayer. I read this um, you know, a few months ago, or a year ago, the African explorer David Livingston, uh, he, he was a missionary and explorer there. A lot of controversy about him, but it was clear he had a heart to see the people of Africa come to know Jesus. And he said this, he said, many a morning I've stood on my porch of my house and I've looked northward and I've seen the smoke arise from villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. I've seen at different times the smoke of a thousand villages Villages who are, whose people are without Christ, without God, and without hope in the world. The smoke of a thousand villages. The smoke of a thousand villages. Do you see the smoke of a thousand villages? Do you see the rooftops in our city, our friends, our neighbors, and how desperately they need the grace of God? A uh, couple of years ago, actually, we started this. In fact, I left mine on my the front uh, pew. We asked uh, many of you to take these little tags and put on your key ring to be praying for your friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus. And when we were, the reason we were praying for them 
is we're seeking God's grace for their lives because we believe that without the grace of God, they would be on the the same path we were on as well, one towards destruction. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that your friends need Jesus or do you think Jesus would just be a good idea? Do you think Jesus would just be helpful or do you see that they desperately, desperately need the saving work of Jesus Christ? That's why we pray. When we're convinced of the need, we will become people of prayer. So we see the need. Like Moses, we have to see the need. But not only do we have to see the need, we have to actually see that grace is available. It, you know, for Moses to pray, he had to believe in God's grace. He had to actually believe that, that God would do something differently than what God has said he was going to do. And so let's look at God's grace. Now the irony, there's, I think grace, there's an irony about our, our relationship with grace. Everybody loves the idea of grace. Everybody loves the idea of grace. Everybody loves the idea that God would show grace. What we don't like, in fact, what we find rather offensive is that we need grace. We find it rather offensive, the idea that, that, that we don't deserve God's favor. We, we find it offensive that the notion that we're desperate for God's mercy. But look at verse 10. In verse 10, we have this picture of God uh, that is painted for us as a God of wrath who burns with intense anger. Now, does that disturb you? Does that bother you? If it doesn't bother you, there's something wrong with you. This is a disturbing picture. Uh, this, This God of wrath, this God of judgment, It's disturbing that God would bring judgment uh, on people because as the psalmist reminds us uh, that that, that we cannot stand before the great God. We cannot stand before him. Uh, But just because we find this picture of God disturbing, that does not mean either that God is petulant or that this picture is false. That God is a God of justice. Uh, Just because you don't like that doesn't mean it's false, or that God's simply being petty. God is not being petty when it comes to the nation of Israel. Now remember what has happened here. Just three to four months earlier, God rescued Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. They've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, 400 years. That's when the pilgrims came here. So that's how long ago it was. They've been in slavery for 400 years. And God raised up Moses to deliver them. He sends the 10 plagues. He humbles the most powerful nation on earth. And then as they leave, God parts the Red Sea. Imagine this. They saw this three months earlier. God parts the Red Sea, they walk across on dry ground, and then God destroys the the Egyptian army that is pursuing them, hunting them down, and they get to the other side, and they're safe, and they're dry, all because God has delivered them. And then they get there, and they're in the wilderness of Sinai, it's a desert, and you know what there's not anything of in the desert? Water, food, that's why it's called a desert, right? And so they think, oh, we're all about to die, God brought us out here to kill us. And, And so then God provides them with water, And every morning, he provides them with manna, sweet rolls from heaven. I think they probably tasted something like Krispy Kremes, but but healthy is kind of my image of of, of it. You you can use your own. But uh, they do taste like honey, the Bible says. And so so here they are, and he feeds them. So it has only been a few months. By the way, he does this every day. It's only been a few months since God rescued them from Egypt And it's only been since breakfast that God provided them with food. And yet already they're saying, God's abandoned us. They're panicked because they don't trust God to see them through. I mean, they they don't even remember breakfast. 
And so, so in this short amount of time that Moses has been gone, they abandon God, they accuse God of abandoning them, and they need a graven image to represent God before them. And even as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, there they are below in the valley, breaking every single one of them. They are in active rebellion against God, uh, the very God who has just rescued them. And that's why oftentimes when the Bible talks about sin, it often uses the term spiritual adultery. We think of sin as breaking of a rule. The Bible says, no, it's not merely breaking of a rule. It's breaking of a loving relationship of a God who's covenanted with us to love us, to care for us, and he's proven himself faithful all the way, and yet we commit spiritual adultery against him. And in the case of Israel, they're sleeping around on the honeymoon. And so what we see is, is God sees what they're doing and the rebellion against him and the rejection of his love. And that's what sin is. Sin is the unjustified betrayal of God's love. And so God's right to be angry at sin. And when we see the true nature of sin, we're, we get angry as well. Notice Moses' interaction with God. He says, God, calm down. Don't be so angry. Please turn your anger against, against them. And, he, and he's seeking to calm God down. Then here's what we see happens next. Moses goes down the mountain. And by the way, he's bringing with him the Ten Commandments that have been carved on tablets of stone by God's own finger. Can you imagine how valuable these would be? I mean, that would like the Mona Lisa seem like your child's crayon picture on your refrigerator. That's how precious these things are. He's coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And, and he's just told God not to be so angry. He gets down. He sees the partying that's going on, the raucousness, the, the drinking, the sexual immorality, everything that's happening here. And the people are out of control. And Moses gets so angry after just telling God to calm down. He takes the Ten Commandments and smashes them on the ground. He says, I can't. He just, he's, he's horrified at what he sees. And when we see sin in its reality and the true nature of it, it horrifies us as well. We have to see the exceedingly sinfulness of sin. That sin is, is God's reaction to sin is not a divine temper tantrum. God is not simply out of control. Rather, God's anger is his just, measured, proper response to the corrupting force of evil. God is not about to pour out his anger because he's simply difficult to please. It's not that God is, uh, is, is, is being petulant in any sense of the word. Rather, his justice, his anger, is precisely what Israel deserves. They do not deserve God's forgiveness. They do not deserve God's love. And that's the point. And so Moses does not pray for justice. He does not ask Israel to give what the, God to give Israel what Israel deserves. He's pleading with God for grace, and grace, by definition, is undeserved. Grace always goes to the undeserving because there's no such thing as grace for the deserving. That's called works. And God, so he's pleading with God for grace. And again, we find this idea of God's grace to be beautiful, but we find the idea that we need grace to be insulting. To claim that God will save us based on nothing that we have done, we like that. But to say that our works and our deeds and our actions deserve God's wrath, we find that offensive. But without that, we can't understand grace. Moses then does not accuse God of being unjust uh, in punishing Israel. Rather, he appeals to God's own gracious covenant. Notice what he does. God, in fact, there's an interesting use of uh, the, the pronouns, uh, possessive pronouns here, the word your. 
When God tells Moses what's going on, he says this to him. He says, look at what your people are doing down there. You know what this sounds like? You know, you know when your dad and you come home from work and your wife says to you, you know what your son has done today? That's probably doesn't mean he's on the honor roll, right? I mean, when he says that, she's saying, that's your son. He's like you. He is not one of mine. And God says this to Moses. These are your people. And Moses comes back to God and notice what he says. He goes, uh-uh. These are your people. These are your people, O Lord. Verse 11. These are the people that you yourself brought out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Then in verse 13, Moses reminds God that he has made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob to make Israel a great nation. God has bound himself to this people. These are God's chosen people. Now, why is Israel God's chosen people? Just because God chose them, that's all. Not because they're better than the others. God even says this, I chose you not because you're a greater nation, you're the smallest, I didn't choose you because anything worthwhile in you, God says, I chose you because in you, I'm gonna show my blessing and show my covenant. The very fact that God has committed himself to a people is an act of grace. God chose Israel out of grace, not out of works. And so Moses reminds him of that. He goes, God, you've already shown them your grace. You've already committed yourself to them by your grace. And so, Lord, they're living in this covenant with you by your grace, not by their works. And he goes on to say, and plus, Lord, you just rescued them by triumphing over the Egyptians. And if they die now, then the nations will think that you're weak. They will not see your glory. Lord, show your glory here with the people of Israel. And then he goes on. Uh, we didn't read this part, but after uh, uh, Moses goes down and he, he, he uh, calms down the situation, he puts away their idols, destroys their idols. In fact, he does something rather interesting. He takes the golden calf, pulverizes it into powder, and puts it in water and makes everybody drink it. It's kind of like washing your mouth out with soap, right? Same sort of idea. Um, and, and so then after that, Moses goes back and he still pleads with God and prays on behalf of the people because things were worse than Moses had thought. And in verses 30 to 32, he offers to make atonement for their sins. And he begs God for their forgiveness and he intercedes for them and he says, Lord, take me instead. If you if gotta take somebody, take me instead. Moses uh, offers his own life, but the Lord rejects Moses' offer because after all, Moses isn't qualified for the job. <laughs> You have to be a spotless sacrifice, and Moses himself is not that. But there would come one who would later do what Moses offered to do. Jesus has come, and he's come as our priest, and he intercedes for us. And with his hands outstretched on the cross, he says to the Father, take me instead. Take me instead. Give me what these people deserve so that you can give them what I deserve. And here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing about prayer. I think understanding this can, we'll talk about this later, but can, can empower your prayer life in a great way. Did you know that right now Jesus is still doing the same thing? He is praying for you. He's at the right hand of the Father praying for you right now. Do you think that Jesus ever has a prayer request that goes unanswered? He's pleading for you. And so whatever is happening in your life right now, 
It's happening according to the prayers of Jesus who loves you and cherishes you. And in those times where you're wondering if, if, if this can't be right, we have to step back in faith and say, well, I know my Lord loves me. It must be right. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But if Jesus is praying for me, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. He's pleading for you. He's saying to the Father, you gave me what they deserve. So give them what I deserve. And even more, sometimes we have this image that God the Father is up there going, mm, 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 I'm going to judge, judge, judge. And Jesus is the one saying, stop, stop, stop. And we forget that Jesus the Father and the Spirit are one, and they're unified in the will. The Father delights in blessing. Did you know that, that God actually says this about himself? He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he also talks about the delight he takes in showing mercy to those who need mercy. And we see this even here, right here. It looks like God's reluctant to bless, but I think if you look a little bit more closely, we find that God actually is wanting to bless Israel. Notice how God uh, provokes Moses to pray. He, he actually provokes Moses to pray. He, he, look at verse 10. After God tells Moses about all the shenanigans that the Israelites are up to, he says in verse 10, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. What's God saying? Okay, hold me, don't try and stop me, Moses. Don't try and stop me. What is he saying? Try and stop me. That's exactly what he's saying. If God wanted to destroy Israel, he would just destroy Israel. He wouldn't have said, Moses, let me tell you what they're gonna do, what they're doing, and you don't try and stop me. No, he is calling Moses out. He, he is provoking him to pray because Moses is gonna meditate on who God is and based on God's character, Moses is going to pray. He's gonna pray based on, on the grace of God. And so, so Moses, he forces Moses to think and he uses this as a teachable moment for Moses. Uh, he prods him and he uses this moment for Moses to think about God's sovereignty and God's grace. Moses has to think about who God is and what God has promised to do. And so uh, God makes Moses come to this inescapable conclusion that God will never abandon his covenant no matter what. Did Moses tell God anything God didn't already know? God said, oh, that's right, I forgot I made that promise. No, no, this is all for Moses. And, and what God is doing with Moses is, is reminding him, I made a covenant, I made a promise, I will keep my promise. I know that, do you know that? Do you know that? And when we pray, we're praying, we're seeking God's blessing, we're reminding ourselves of who God is and the promises that he has made to us. And God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, Christian, do you believe that? You know, as I say almost every week, I, I, I believe that most of the time. I, but I struggle with my doubts. And, uh, and I, at times I wonder. In fact, every time, you know, if you look at this story, we want to think that we're like Moses. But you know who we're really like? We're like the Israelites, Man, God, you know, you haven't answered my prayer since breakfast. You've abandoned me. Boy, Lord, it's been three months since you parted the Red Sea. I wonder if I can still trust you or not. Do you see how we do that? We're the Israelites. We're not Moses. But God shows grace to the Israelites. And if God showed grace to the Israelites, guess what? He's going to show grace to you and to me as well. And we, that's the reason we pray. Uh, we, believe, we pray because we actually believe God is gracious. One of the reasons I think we often fail to pray is because we've come to the right conclusion 
that we do not deserve for God to answer any of our prayers. And we look at what we've done and say, Lord, I have not, I've not read my Bible enough. I've not prayed enough. I've not been in church enough. I've not been good enough. I don't deserve for you to answer my prayers. And not only that, we can look and say, Lord, not only have I not done enough good, I've done all this that is bad, and certainly what I deserve is not you to answer my prayer, I deserve your judgment. And when we begin to feel that guilt and that condemnation, which in some cases it might be false guilt condemnation, but we've got enough real guilt condemnation that it really doesn't matter. And we begin to feel that guilt condemnation, we go, I can't pray. I can't ask God for anything. I don't deserve to ask God anything. And that's the point. And that's the point. Prayer is, a, uh, is a calling on God and God's grace. But what if God's answer to our prayer were not based on our works at all? What if God's answers to our prayer had nothing to do with what we deserve, but had everything to do with what Jesus deserved? Do you think if you believed that, you would pray differently? Do you think if, as you can't come before God and you say, Lord, I know that you say the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much and I am not a righteous man. But then you remember that there is one who is righteous and that is Jesus. And I put my faith in him and so through Jesus I am righteous in the righteousness of Christ. So Lord, don't answer my prayer because of what I have done. Answer my prayer because of what Jesus has done. When we believe that God is gracious, we will not hold back in coming to him. Do you see the need of the world around us? Do you see the brokenness? Do you see how, how, how we're called to intercede on their behalf? And do you see God's grace in your life? And if you see God's grace in your life, don't you think God could show his grace to other people as well? Come when we pray in the name of Jesus because he's the one who's earned the blessings for us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the good news that we are not dependent on our works, but we are solely dependent on the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that Jesus has earned for us by his life, death, and resurrection, that he has earned for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. We thank you that in Christ, we have an inheritance reserved for us that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So Lord, we pray that we would pray based on what we know about you. May we pray in faith when those doubts come up around us saying that we are not worthy. May we, may we answer back to those doubts with the truth of the gospel. And even as we struggle to doubt, may we still persevere in prayer because we know that our prayers are not based on us but based on Jesus. And so, Lord, teach us to pray. Also, Lord, we pray, open our eyes to the needs of the world around us. We get uh, so self-centered, so myopic that we miss the brokenness. We see others who are hurting and suffering and sometimes in our self-righteousness, we might even think they deserve it. Oh, Lord, forgive us. May we be people who are interceding on behalf of our city and of our world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.